0: "'Twas the island of Christmas, and all across the land, "'the red crabs were flowing across root street and sand. "'Like a red tide of scuttling, claw-snapping doom, "'they streamed through my front door
1: and into my rooms. "'Meanwhile in the forests, the giants there crawled, "'coconut crabs hulking monsters with claws. "'They hunted for carrion, crab, bird, and rat, "'and gobbled it up, rancid sinew and fat.'" Welcome
0: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And getting in that holiday spirit, we're going to be talking about crab horror. Yes. This is th- this
0: pair of episodes I've been looking forward to all year. Uh, this has been my, my goal. Uh, I forget when, but earlier in the year... I was reading about uh, Christmas Island and and the various uh, creatures that uh, that call it home, and I and I realized we have to do
1: this episode for Christmas, even though this really has nothing to do with Christmas.
0: No, virtually nothing to do with Christmas. <laughs> though I do enjoy um, like forcing uh, decapods upon Christmas, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 at least in my mind, allowing them to take over the holiday.
1: Decapods with bows of hol Is it bows? I should have said Claws of Glory. <laughs> Either way, I appreciate the, uh, the holiday zeal. Now, uh, so we're going to be going to uh, Crab Horror Island, and there are many <laughs> wonderful movies. I, maybe we'll save it for next time to talk about our favorite Crab Island movies, but The Giant Crab is one of my favorite kind of movie monsters, and they've always got to have their own island of terror, right? Right, and uh, and so in discussing Christmas
0: Island in these two episodes, we are going to talk about... Uh, crabs or, you know, decapods anyway, that are either enormous, uh, singularly enormous or Mm -hmm.
1: collectively enormous. I think the first episode we're going to focus on the collectively enormous Mm -hmm. and the second episode will focus on the decapods who are individually enormous. Now, this first episode is going to focus on the Christmas Island red crab. Robert, will you take me on a mystical adventure to Crab Horror Island? Yes, we're talking
0: about Christmas Island, uh, so named. It's uh, in the Indian Ocean, about 350 kilometers or 220 miles south of Java and Sumatra and around, let's see, 1,550 kilometers or 960 miles northwest of the closest point on the Australian mainland. Technically
1: part of Australia,
0: though. Right. It is an Australian external territory. It has an area of 135 square kilometers or 52 square miles. So not huge. No, not a big place at all. It's a very old, though, very old volcanic seamount island. Mm-hmm. It was first visited by Europeans in 1643. Captain William Minors of the Royal Mary, an English East India Company vessel, he just named the island when he sailed past it on Christmas Day of that year. That's that 's the only Christmas tie in he didn 't find a you know a naturally occurring Christmas tree there right uh, there, there's no uh, wasn 't where the elf workshop was exactly there's there's nothing else about it except it was Christmas day when he found it it could have easily it could have easily turned out to be Christmas Eve Island or uh, Boxing Day Island or Halloween Island that would perhaps be a little more uh, appropriate yeah uh, so the one of the cool things about this place is that when When they were able to take a closer look at it, they realized that it was uninhabited, at least by humans.
1: So it's obvious that what makes this island unique is not anything about the indigenous culture or anything since it was apparently uninhabited originally. But it was not uninhabited by wildlife, as we've made clear. The wildlife there was of a terrific scuttling variety.
0: Oh, correct. And and one of the really cool things about the scuttling life uh, on Christmas Island is that so much of it is on Christmas Island. We're talking about land crabs, Mm -hmm. crabs that need only return to the water to mate but mostly live on land. And you'll find these elsewhere to be sure. This is not the only place uh, land crabs uh, can be found. Uh, and we're, we're talking about both true crabs as well as hermit crabs here. Hermit crabs are decapods but not true crabs. Right. Uh, but forgive us as we, as we talk about them in these episodes. I will probably end up calling them both crabs in the unofficial sense. But Christmas Island is home to more land crabs than anywhere else on Earth. We're talking more than 20 terrestrial and semi-terrestrial crab species, plus 160 species or thereabouts in the reefs and shallows around the island.
1: Yeah. So, Robert, tell me a little bit about crabs.
0: Well, just to refresh everybody, crabs are crustaceans, uh, but we should be clear that again, there are true crabs of the uh, Decapoda order, Brachyura, which means small tail. Um, which uh, references their smaller abdomen. And then there are the Anomora or mixed tail crabs, which include uh, hermits and, as we'll discuss later in the second episode, robber crabs. Uh, but still, uh, again, we're often going to refer to them both as crabs uh, in the unofficial sense. Uh, and these are were, these were ancient creatures. These were the first animals to develop true legs. None of those false legs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about crabs on the show before. I think back to our episode about uh, Carl Sagan and the samurai crabs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so hopefully everyone is, uh, is on board for two more episodes of, uh, of crab-based content.
1: But so it's not just the varieties of crab and crab-like creatures that live on Christmas Island that make it Crab Island Earth. Uh, It is is the number of a particular species of crab there, the Christmas Island Red Crab— where there are supposedly tens of millions of these crabs on the island. And this is not a big island. Remember, it's 135 square kilometers.
0: Right, a small island, and yet, yeah, I've seen the figures of like 50 million of these uh, creatures
1: living living in the
0: forest, living, uh, you know, pretty much all over the island.
1: And th- that's a reduced number. I remember uh, w- we watched a documentary about the island from the 1980s that suggested at the time it was believed that there were over 100 million of the crabs there. Right,
0: that was, uh, yeah, 1988. David Attenborough uh, narrated a special titled
1: Kingdom of the Crabs. Great title. And that's a great one to watch if you get a chance because it really shows off what makes this island uh, visually astounding. Yes. Uh, but it's the sheer numbers of the crabs. And the Christmas Island Red Crab is pretty much found only
0: on Christmas Island.
1: Yeah, I think maybe on another nearby island or island group. But they're not found like all over the place. Right.
0: So I do want to come back to the human history for a little bit before we we explore the the red uh, uh crab in depth. So the most uh, you know essential thing about human history of Christmas Island is that for the longest there seems to have been none. It is a geographically isolated place. Now from everything I've read so far and it's always possible I'm missing something but there's no evidence that humans ever visited the place before the 17th century CE. This despite Java being, again, only 220 miles away. It's a short enough distance for modern humans anyway that boats of asylum seekers frequently make it their point of destination in reaching Australia mm-hmm. because, again, it's an Australian external territory. So if you reach Christmas Island, you are uh, you know, in a legal sense in Australia. However, uh, it's also worth pointing out that the seas can be deadly uh, surrounding Christmas Island and the, there are stories out there of boats of asylum seekers breaking on the rocky coast with lethal results.
1: I think I've read about this in cases of the early visitors to the island also that, you know, it was kind of dangerous to land there. And for example, there was one case where I read that a, a crew was driven to land there because there was scurvy on the ship and it was mm-hmm. only because the disease had gotten so bad that they risked trying to land.
0: Yeah, that's sort of the typical storybook uh, reasons for landing on an uninhabited island with a strange crab population. Right, Yeah. But
1: uh, out of the scurvy pan into the crabs.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know, it, but but it is it is weird to, to think about places like this, places where where humans just didn't uh, take up residence. And of course, you have to of course uh, realize that moving to an isolated island is, is a difficult proposition. Mm-hmm. Like you've really got to have a reason to go there and a reason to stay there, uh, and a way to um, to, to safely uh, arrive there as well. Uh, But still, you know, it's enough to make one wonder. Uh, For instance, Homo erectus or Java man lived on the island of Java uh, relatively close by 1.7 million years ago. Humans practiced agriculture there on Java uh, as early as 2500 BCE. Java was known to traders and other powers. The kingdom of Mataram ruled there until they lost power to the Dutch East India Company in 1749 and became a vassal state of the company. Um, a statement that I think um, really drives home the the power of the East India Company. Yeah. Um, the idea that you would have an in, a, a vassal state to a corporation. Yeah. But that's Java. My my point is that I just find it so enthralling that this island remained either free of human contact for so long, or only encountered minimal influence. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I guess it's possible that it's, at some point somebody wound up there by purpose or accident, and but either, they didn't stay long. They yeah, didn't to... stay long enough to leave a footprint. Yeah. You know, uh, Galapagos Islands are another example of this, though there, uh, there have been at least disputed claims of Inca artifacts found on the Galapagos Islands, perhaps due to Inca sailors being blown off course. The Seychelles in uh, the Indian Ocean are another example of islands that were uninhabited through most of recorded history, though they may have been visited by early seafarers as well, depending on who you talk to. But with Christmas Island, I found no such thing, Mm -hmm. not even a crackpot theory. (laughs) So uh, it it really does seem as if humans – Not even
1: a Vikings went there theory.
0: No Vikings or anything. So it really does seem that nobody visited it until the 17th century with the earliest sighting, I think, having occurred in 1615.
1: Now, after that, of course, it actually did become an economically significant island because of mineral deposits discovered there. That's right.
0: It was explored by British naturalist John Murray. Uh, and this was uh, 1872, he discovered that there were phosphate deposits on the island, which would play a, a key role in the island's future. Uh, Exportation of phosphate began in 1895 uh, by the Christmas Island Phosphate Company, and this activity led to the loss of 25 percent of the island's rainforest area.
1: Yeah, now phosphate was important in the late 1800s because it had been discovered by that time that phosphate, when treated with sulfuric acid, could be used as an ingredient in plant food. And of course, synthetic fertilizers became very important in the development of commercial agriculture at scale. And so now
0: there was a reason, an economic reason for people to not only go to Christmas Island, but to uh, work there. Yeah. And so settlement began in the 1880s. Later on, during the Second World War, there was a Japanese occupation of the island from 1942 to 1945. And in the post-war period, it was administered by Singapore, which was then a British colony. And then Australia purchased the island for 2.9 million pounds on January 1st, 1958, a day that's known as Territory Day on Christmas Island. Today, it has around, I've read, 2,000 full-time uh, human residents. And the ethnic makeup is mostly Chinese and melee, um originally brought in for labor.
1: Now, a big portion of the land of the island today is basically a national park. It's like a big wildlife uh, preservation area. Yeah, two-thirds of its landmass are national park now. And a big part of the wildlife significance here is the Christmas Island red crab. So I guess we should dive headfirst into a puddle of crabs after we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So it is time to dive into a pit of crabs, the Christmas Island Red Crab, or Gecarcoidea natalis. And these are crabs that live, as we mentioned earlier, primarily not in the ocean, not even on the shoreline, but in inland forests. So if you picture Christmas Island, it's sort of a terraced rainforest it's a you know a volcanic island it's got some steep slopes that go up onto rainforest uh, covered terraces and the crabs go all the way up into the forests and make their burrows inland yeah we're talking again something like 50 million of these uh, little land
0: dwellers uh, in the forests, chewing up leaf litter Uh, and here on christmas island they are the chief decay agents for that leaf litter uh, I've, I've seen estimates of something like 4,000 crabs per acre to keep the leaf litter down.
1: Yes, and they, they primarily feed on plant matter, like you say, so that is going to be leaf litter. It's also things like fallen fruits and seeds, flowers, et cetera. But they're also crabs after all, so you might <laughs> not be surprised to learn that they are opportunistic omnivores, right. one of my favorite <laughs> pairs of words. So if you get a little bit of meat from, say, another dead red crab or something like that presenting itself, this is a legitimate score and they will say gentlemen get that in my mouth parts it's time to masticate. <laughs> but the crabs are important for the maintenance of the ecosystem in multiple ways. So they they clear the forest floor of like leaf litter but also saplings and flowers other Plants that would create dense underbrush and so they keep the forest floors clean and this actually helps contribute to forest biodiversity. They also uh, prevent the soil from being packed too densely because of the burrows they dig. They're like natural soil tillers. They turn the soil and uh, this also helps contribute to uh, forest biodiversity. But so we might have a a pretty good sense of what the life of an ocean-dwelling crab is like. What is the life of a land crab like? Uh, Crabs, as you can imagine, in between chewing up things in their environment and eating it, they have to stay moist. And this means, for one thing, staying out of the direct sun. So the red crabs on Christmas Island like to stay in the shady forests and they live in these dugout burrows that they can hide from the sun in.
0: And they have gill chambers that have adapted for terrestrial life. Uh, they have to keep them moist. And they also, I love this, they have to manually wet their eye stalks. Yes,
1: I love this. It's pretty cool to watch if you can mm-hmm. find video of this. So their eye stalks emerge from little cups in their carapace. And they don't have eyelids, of course. And by the way, just try to imagine life without eyelids. <laughs> Kind of a terror, so they wet and wash their eyes by filling their eye cups up with drops of water and then dipping their eye stalks down into the cups to rinse them off <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is one of the great things about watching any crab uh close
0: up, but it especially with the Christmas crabs is those tiny little sort of methodical movements that you see take place with their mouth parts and their their eye stalks totally. Now, despite their life in the woods, they still have to return to the sea to spawn, and this results in a vast scuttling migration that is truly unlike anything else on Earth. This is why you will you will see you know, so many different uh, uh, documentaries about Christmas Island. This is why there's so much great footage uh, because they, uh, they they go on these enormous migrations. And we're talking a several kilometer journey each year.
1: Yeah, this is Crab Apocalypse. Yes, this, this is where the real show is on Christmas Island. And so around the beginning of the rainy season, which is sometime October through December, the red crabs begin this migration for their breeding cycle. And the migration begins with the males, usually the biggest males, who will crawl out over land from their forest burrows to the shore where they're going to eventually uh, get there and dig new burrows for mating. And as the males make this journey, the females eventually join them in the journey and they march toward the sea. Now, once the crabs reach the shore, but before they dig their burrows to mate, uh, they typically wash themselves off in seawater. Though strangely enough, they have to be careful not to get fully sucked out into the sea because these are land-dwelling crabs. This is how they've evolved and they can neither breathe underwater nor can they swim very well. These are crabs who are not very good at being crabs. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, so the, the the truly aquatic crabs in the the neighborhood are just probably watching this and laughing at yeah. them. Yeah, uh, but there's so many of them. How could you laugh at them? Because they could really gang up on you if yes. they got a hold of you, right? Uh, but so they they w- rinse themselves off in the seawater. And then the males dig the burrows. Now, sometimes when they dig the burrows, usually they'll go up a little bit from the the beach and one of the the forested areas just right by the beach. And they'll dig these burrows. And sometimes the males have to defend their burrows from other males who, of course, think, hey, why dig one when you can just claim somebody else's? Mm -hmm. So there are sometimes these fights and dominance displays, a lot of claw waving to keep the burrows secure. And then, of course, the females come in and they will find a male with a burrow and initiate the mating. And by the way, if you've never watched crabs mating before, it's one of the funnier looking types of animal sex. I think it's just – crabs look funny no matter what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But – Also, if you can just watch their eyes while they're mating, it's really something special. It's, you know, it's like two googly-eyed robots trying to be sexy at each other and then throw in some claws and swiveling mouth parts. It's just awesome.
0: Now, you mentioned the waving the claws. I want to, I was reading a little bit about crab claws in Douglas J. Imland's book, Animal Weapons. Uh, And he he spends a little bit of time talking about, you know, how these are high energy adaptations. They're packed with powerful muscles. They need to be able to break through the exoskeletons of, uh, uh, of rival males in many cases. Uh and he mostly looks at, at fiddler crabs in this book. Uh, but but it but it's interesting stuff. The the economics of not only having growing evolving gigantic claws but waving them around mm-hmm. because that's that's part of having a having claws or a claw is to wave that sucker around. It's like having antlers, know. yeah. Yeah.
1: Or like flexing your muscles, like showing off the guns. Yeah, you got to show off the guns. Uh, (laughs) That's that's part of having them, right? Uh, Yeah. So the the female will generally find a male – and uh, a male with a burrow and they will mate and then after mating what the males do is they just pack up and head back inland. Their work is done and they leave the females by themselves in these seaside burrows. And uh, there's another interesting thing about this, okay? So the red crabs are sort of moon-worshipping druids. (laughs) The breeding migration has to be timed exactly according to the cycle of the moon because the cycle of the moon affects the tides. So the adult crabs arrive at the shore and then they mate and after mating the females produce eggs within about three days and then they remain in their burrows for another 12 or 13 days and after this they emerge from the hole in the ground and they release their eggs into the seawater and it has to be timed exactly at the turn of high tide as the moon goes from its last quarter to a new moon and this is because it's when the tide conditions are just right to be releasing uh, the young. But uh, if the migration is delayed by weather so that breeding can't be timed exactly right with the phases of the moon, the crabs will just wait. They'll just wait until the next month to breed because it, it's not it's – not going. the moon isn't right. So when the time is right. The females release their egg sacs, which looks kind of like a weird foamy sponge that they carry on the underside of their bodies. They release these egg sacs into the water. Yet again, I, I can't help but notice that my wonder at these animals is combined with hilarity on seeing this. Because in some cases, the female crabs have to release their eggs into like rough surf while clinging to rocks above the water. And they're trying to be careful not to fall in. And when you see footage of this, the way they're just frantically shaking their bodies to to knock the egg sacs off, dumping thousands of eggs off a cliff, I, I can't help but laugh. It's funny, and then also sometimes they'll they'll go into the surf on a beach, and you'll see them like raising their claws and shaking their bodies, like uh, <laughs> get off, <laughs> just dumping all these eggs off into the water. I don't know. It's it it's
0: funny to me. Well, by human uh, comparisons, they're they're maybe not great moms, but by uh, but by Christmas Island red crab standards, uh, moms of the year.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that this does make me think about the ways that we anthropomorphize good parenting. I want to come back to that in just a minute. So the eggs are released into the surf and they hatch pretty much immediately. And then you've got these hatchling crab larvae that live in the water for about a month, transforming through larval stages. And then they, they return to the shore in this seething foam of what looks like pink ants. This is also just astonishing to see, like the original migration from the forest to the shore, with the beaches and rocks covered in this surging pink shag carpet of tiny millimeter sized baby crabs and then they molt and immediately after molting they, they are committed to an air breathing life on land and they travel inland to do as their ancestors did before them and this growth from about a five millimeter baby crab stage to adulthood usually takes about four years during which time they mostly tend to hide out under cover until they get big enough to fend for themselves but yeah back to this idea about the way we look at non-human animals and tend to to judge their parenting i mean that's inherently what i was doing when i think it's funny just watching the the mother crabs chuck their eggs off a cliff yeah uh, but it's like It's hilarious watching a crab vigorously shake its body to knock all the eggs off and stuff. But it's because we've so deeply internalized the brood protection tendencies of mammals. Mammals tend to keep their offspring close and take care of them for for like extended periods of time while they mature. And that would make no sense for crabs to do. First of all, of course, it's just mechanically the case because the eggs need to hatch in the water. That's what chemically and mechanically they do. But also – Mathematically, the parents have a totally different relationship with their offspring. Mammals tend to produce you know relatively small numbers of offspring and invest a lot of energy into caring for and protecting them. But I was trying to do a little bit of rough math about the red crab. So let's assume there are fifty million adult red crabs on the island and then you've got mated pairs, and each mated pair of adult crabs produces tens of thousands of eggs. I've seen a common figure of 100,000 eggs per female crab cited. So if 50 million crabs mated and produced 25 million egg sponges, and each of those had 100,000 eggs in it, and all those eggs survived to adulthood, that would be 2,500,000,000 <laughs> billion crabs. Now, Christmas Island is about 135 square kilometers. If my math is right, this means that just after one year, there would be Christmas island would have 18.5 billion crabs per square kilometer. So you're saying as a
0: red crab mom, you have to be willing to let some of those crabs go because
1: you have the the, the numbers on your side. Right. I mean, it's just a totally different way of of having a relationship between generations, right? Mm -hmm. They're going for, for numbers, you know, it's quantity rather than quality. And it's just impossible for all those young to sustainably survive. Survive. Even if a decent fraction of them survived, it would be ridiculous. Only a tiny fraction of them can possibly make it to adulthood in any ecologically sustainable way. And so most that get dumped out into the water uh, to hatch never make it back to shore alive. They get washed out to sea, never to return. Apparently whale sharks – migrate to the Christmas Island area to eat red crab larvae when they hatch. And uh, among those that do make it back to the beach uh, in that, in that you know, foamy pink shag carpet I mentioned, they're obviously going to be pretty easy prey at that stage too. You can even sometimes see, I've seen footage of this, of adult red crabs just kind of shoveling clawfuls of young red <laughs> crabs into their mouths. Because, hey, what are the chances that these are mine? It's pretty slim. Again, it, it's a numbers game. Well, plus it's, uh, they're just, again, so many of them. It's like if you make way too
0: much pancake batter, uh, you may treat yourself to a few spoonfuls of uh, uncooked (laughs) pancake batter. I mean, why not? It's there. There, You can only make so many pancakes.
1: You can make a similar argument. You'd be like, look, if I made all of this into pancakes, our house would be packed with pancakes six (laughs) feet high. Exactly. But anyway, given this kind of life cycle and these kind of odds, the way to be a good parent is to do exactly what the female crabs do. They shake them off into the water where they've got a chance and then they call it a day. There's nothing more you can do at that point. And if somehow you were still around when they hatched and molted, who knows, you might just gobble them up. So despite how funny it looks, I rebuke my instincts. I do not think that the red crabs are bad parents. I think they're awesome crab parents.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the human element. What happens when we add the human element to the red crab element?
1: All right, we're back. Now, we discussed earlier how crazy these migrations are, you know, when the island can sometimes in areas become just thick with crabs that are moving from forest to shore or returning from shore to forest. And this doesn't even take into consideration the fact that sometimes there are multiple waves of migration during the same year. So you've got... Crabs going both ways. Like one set of crabs, they move down to the shore and then there's another, uh, you know, trigger of the rainy season. Another set of crabs, they start moving to the shore and then the other ones are going home. So you can have crabs going this way, crabs going that way. They're on the golf course. They're on the streets. They're in the (laughs) grocery store. I mean, uh, it, it, it can become quite thick with crabs on Christmas Island and yet there are people here.
0: That's right. And those people have vehicles. Yeah. Uh, They they also have pets. Uh, We'll get into some of those uh, complications in a bit. But just the roads, you're talking about something like a million crabs a year crushed by road traffic on Christmas Island. But that's still only going to shake out to something like 1% of the population. And uh, the dead, by the way, are apparently swiftly cannibalized. Uh Again, crabs. Crabs are going to do what crabs are going to do.
1: No, I mentioned earlier that there's this great old British uh, TV documentary called Kingdom of the Crabs narrated by David Attenborough from 1988, I think.
0: Yeah, uh, that was the same year that uh, we got uh, John Carpenter's They Live, Uh Killer Clowns from Outer Space, uh, The Blob, the remake, the really cool 80s remake, Uh as well as, of course, Mac and Me.
1: Well, this is right up there with those. But it's got so many great moments and one of the best moments from it is when you're watching hundreds of crabs scuttling across a pair of railroad tracks (laughs) and then a train emerges in the background and it's barreling toward the crab crossing – and then the crabs show no sign of getting out of the way and then the train conductor starts blowing his horn at the crabs. As if that's going to <laughs> deter them? <laughs> I guess it's like when people like – they stop in the road because a turtle is crossing and they honk their horn at it. <laughs>
0: I've never, I've, I never actually honk my horn at say squirrels yeah. and chipmunks. But I will almost wreck my vehicle to uh, avoid them.
1: But I I guess that's human nature. Like you don't want to squish crabs unnecessarily. I mean, maybe some people do. I could, no. There are probably a few people on the island who kind of get off on it. Well, but. I've
0: read that it can it, it it can also hurt your tires. Yes, uh, there,
1: you have people with flat tires due to the crabs. Probably hurts trains less. Probably. Uh, but yeah. uh, but the humans have had to put in place many steps to help the crabs cope with roads and tracks and the other ways that we have unfortunately disrupted their migration zones. I mean, it's not the crabs' fault, right? They, they didn't ask us to put a road there, put railroad tracks there to do all that kind of stuff. So – These adaptations are are pretty interesting. They include barriers, of course, around the edges of roads. You can put walls around the roads to keep the crabs from walking onto the roads. And these lead to sort of crab funnels that route the crabs to specially designed safe crossings. So you might have an underpass with a grate on top of it. Or even – there's even a five-meter-high crab bridge climbable by crab to help them over one stretch of road. Oh, yeah. And you included a picture of these in our notes. It's pretty
0: incredible because – it looks like one of the the recognizers, those enemy ships in the the Tron movies. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: It, it looks like about a, like that. The big clamp that comes down on top of you,
0: right? Except instead of being made out of brightly colored light, it's covered in brightly colored red crabs. <laughs> right. Now, interestingly enough, early accounts of Christmas Island make no real mention of the crab hordes. So you could you could look at that one of two ways, right? Well, uh, either it didn't occur, in this, at least at the same uh, at the same level, or they just forgot to mention it, which seems unlikely. Well, maybe they didn't witness it. Well, that's true too. But uh, there is this suspected link between the current levels and the the, and the recent levels of, uh, of of the red crab population with the extinction of two species of rat that were on the island when uh, Europeans first arrived. Hmm. And, uh, and it's possible that these two species of rat may have kept the populations more in check. Okay. What are these rats? All right. One is called McClear's rat or Rattus mccleary, and the other is the bulldog rat <laughs> or Rattus nativitatus. And uh, those are just two of only five native mammal species on Christmas Island. Uh, Two have been officially listed as extinct uh, since humans showed up, that being both of these rats. And the the reason uh, that they went extinct, it's it's probably because exotic rodents were brought in by early human colonizers or brought in. I would say they they just came along with
1: as rats do. Okay, So the idea is that humans brought different kinds of rodents. Those rodents outcompeted the native rodents, but those rodents weren't as much of a competition with the red crabs? Well – it, it's more than just
0: out-compete. It's apparently like straight up killed them off oh, with illness. Okay, uh, I was looking at a 2008 study published in PLOS-1, and uh, they, they pointed out that, a, that there seems to be a direct cause here, and it seems to be disease. They collected DNA samples from the island's now extinct native rats via late 19th and early 20th century museum specimens. And they attributed the extinction event here to uh, ship-jumping black rats infected with the protozoan Tripanosoma lewisi, an organism that uh, is related to an organism that causes sleeping sickness in humans. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, native island rats were seen to stagger around following the arrival of the SS Hindustan in 1899. And uh, this uh, protozoan is, li- is likely spread by fleas. Mm. So we have – you know, it's a similar situation that we've seen with uh, – certainly with with human populations and uh, and other organisms where uh, an exotic uh, mm-hmm. variant brought in a parasite that the, uh, the the native inhabitants were just simply unable to deal with mm-hmm. now in terms of other native um, Christmas island mammals, uh, others have had a tough time as well. The Christmas island shrew is critically endangered there's also uh, a, a particular bat uh, the Christmas island uh,
1: Pipistrel,
0: <laughs> Pipistrel, yes. The, thank you for for help on that one. <laughs> uh, now it's, it's criti- what a cute name. It is it is a cute name, a, a cute name for a bat. It's critically endangered, if not outright extinct, and apparently the reasoning behind that is uh, is not completely understood. There's also the Christmas Island flying fox, uh, which is another type of bat. It is also in decline for unknown reasons. And then you have the exotic mammals. We've already mentioned black rats, but you also have uh, house mice. You have feral cats and wild dogs.
1: Now, do we know what the explicit relationship between that change in the mammal populations and the surge in crabs is? The, the belief
0: is that those popula- – the original populations of rodents were helping to keep the uh, population of crabs in check. Okay. And apparently the, uh, the, the exotic mammals have not been able to keep their numbers in check the same in the same rate i see so they're not adapted to to crab island right yeah it's it's one of those situations where again you just see humans show up in the unbalanced things yes now in the case of the red crabs it it would almost seem like the unbalancing made more spectacle right like the reason we're talking about christmas island is because we have this enormous surge that uh, arguably might not be at the same level Uh, if we had also not
1: managed to kill off uh, two whole species of, of rodents on the island true Uh, and there's going to be even more stuff along those lines coming up so there are actually multiple ongoing threats to the life cycle of these amazing animals if if you care about the beauty of the crab army scuttling through the forests you, you should care about these issues one is climate related so there is a paper from 2013 in global change biology called linking el nino local rainfall and migration timing in a tropical migratory species by allison k Shaw and Catherine A. Kelly, and the authors here find that species whose mating and migratory behaviors are determined by weather, like the Christmas Island red crab, remember mm-hmm. it's, the, it's certain things about the beginning of the rainy season that tell them time to go to the beach and mate, uh, they, they will probably be adversely affected by the way climate change is upsetting normal weather patterns that we're used to so the authors write quote we find that the timing of the annual crab breeding migration is closely related to the amount of rain that falls during a migration window period prior to potential egg release dates which is in turn related to the southern oscillation index and atmospheric El Nino southern oscillation index as uh, reproduction in this species is conditional on successful migration they don't reproduce if they don't migrate major changes in migration patterns could have detrimental consequences for the survival of the species. So in other words, climate change messes around with the amount of timing of the rainfall on Christmas Island and then the crabs get the short end of the stick and could find themselves unable to use their normal migration and breeding instincts in order to produce the next generation. And this could also have follow-on effects with the animals that depend on these uh, migratory animals for food. Like the Christmas Island red crab is sort of a keystone species on the Island in many ways, uh, one of the things we already mentioned is that those whale sharks come to eat the Christmas island red crab larvae in the water, but another thing is as we mentioned, they maintain the state of the forest by clearing leaf litter and clearing out other uh, plants in the undergrowth of the forest and you know and by turning the soil right yeah they're they're aerators. Now, there is another culprit that is putting the Christmas Island red crabs at risk, and that is yellow crazy ants. Ah, crazy ants again. It's different crazy ants, somewhat. Different. So we did an episode about crazy ants before, but that was focused on a completely different animal. We were mainly talking about the raspberry crazy ant of the genus Nylanderia. The yellow ant is a, a totally different genus. It's Anoplolepis gracilopes, and these are ants with a slender body, long legs, and like the crazy ants in genus Nylanderia. They're also easily recognized by these movement patterns that give them their name. Their motion is sometimes described as frantic or erratic or crazy. And like raspberry crazy ants, these ants can also form what are known as super colonies, which means they build separate but friendly nests which do not attack one another and form a kind of web of allied ant armies that can easily overwhelm the habitats that they spread to. And so they're considered a very problematic invasive species. Like other crazy ants, also they spray formic acid as a defensive and offensive biological weapon, and formic acid is a powerful chemical. Uh, it's apparently a, a potent poison against land crabs, so you can imagine a bunch of ants come up against one of these uh, Christmas Island red crabs, and the ants spray formic acid in its eyes, in the segment joints of the crabs. Uh, so you know, like getting in the the leg joints, and this can leave the crabs unable to move or to survive. And then after the crabs. of course, the ants get a feast of crab meat. And this has had a huge impact on crab populations. It's been estimated that in the last 15 years, the ants have reduced the crab populations on the island by as much as 40%. Yikes. So local land crabs have been put severely at risk by the yellow crazy ants. Interestingly, the yellow crazy ants existed on the island for many decades. I think they were introduced sometime in the first half of the 20th century. I've seen estimates in the 19-teens or 20s around then. Uh, And they were on the island a long time before they became so destructive to the land crabs beginning around the 1990s. So what changed around the 1990s? I was reading a report that was put together by Parks Australia together with La Trobe University. And it appears that it was only in the 1990s or so that these massive super colonies of yellow crazy ants began forming. So what caused that change? What happened then? Uh, The authors point to the emergence of a mutualism, actually, a, a symbiotic relationship. And this is a mutualism between the yellow crazy ants and another group of insects called scale insects.
0: Oh, so it's like the like the the two enemies they 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 forged a truce, and uh, and then were united against the forces of the crab.
1: Yes. Uh, so another non-native species, the scale insects. What they do is they cling to plant stems and they suck the sap from the plants for energy and they produce a sugary waste product from their anal pores in the process and the ants love this sugary poop. They go straight to the anal pores and they eat it up. So they have formed this mutualistic protective relationship with the tree-sucking candy poopers. <laughs> the scale insects suck from the trees, they produce sugary poop, the yellow, the yellow crazy ants eat the sugary poop and they protect the scale insects and it appears that this Symbiosis between the yellow crazy ants and the scale insects is related to the ants' ability to form these ecologically devastating super colonies. But here's – so th- then you take the question one step back. Well, what caused this mutualism to begin in the first place? Uh, the authors of this report don't know. They speculate that changing rainfall patterns on Christmas Island were putting stress on trees and this made the sap more concentrated, which means it's even more sugar. Show- Sugary goodness for the scale insects, and this increases the population of the scale insects, which uh, produces more delicious sugary poop for their yellow ant friends, which means more ants to protect the scale insects, which means even more scale insects, and then you get this dangerous feedback loop.
0: It's, this is all – Christmas Island is in so many ways this, uh, this wonderful look at the, 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 the
1: horrible cascading effects of colonialism of human intervention in general mm-hmm. I mean at the macroscopic climate level and at the local invasive level yeah, right. at, like at every level we have messed with this island and we messed with it in one way and now we're messing with it in a different way and, and now in fact we're going to keep messing with it in order to try to fix part <laughs> of what we did <laughs> uh, because the question is can anything be done to save these amazing red crabs I mean the, these are uh, it, it is a wonderful thing to see these animals doing what they do and so I was reading an interesting article about this on the conversation in uh, posted in 2016 by two Latrobe University professors Susan Lawler and Peter Green, and apparently Parks Australia has been trying to do all kinds of things uh, to help the crabs survive the crazy ants or to knock the crazy ant supercolonies back. Like they tried poison baiting the ants by hand, but apparently this is just not an efficient solution. In 2016, they launched a new project, and this was killer wasps. Ooh, I like it. Tell me more. So. The The killer wasps, they're only about two millimeters long, and they're naturally found in India and Southeast Asia. They're called Tacardiophagus somervilli. And the authors selected this tiny wasp because it attacks this specific species of scale insect that has formed the mutualistic relationship with the crazy ants. Uh, So – The wasp is a parasitoid that lays its eggs in the body of the female of this one species of scale insect, which hatch into more wasps that lay more eggs in these uh, species of scale insects. And hopefully, this will severely control the population of this one particular species of scale insect, which is also invasive on the island. Uh, And the authors note that they've had to be very cautious because they cite examples that... You know, in the past, we've tried to introduce animals to places in in the hope that they would control a pest problem, but then they became a problem in their own right. They cite the example of the cane toad in Australia, which was brought in to control cane beetles, but then it became its own kind of problem.
0: I'm reminded, of course, of uh, the old nursery rhyme. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Right. Right. (laughs) And she's forced to keep swallowing progressively larger and— Parasitic wasps. (laughs) Larger and more destructive organisms to try and uh, save her until she dies at the end of the song.
1: Yeah. Well, the authors—so we hope that doesn't happen. The authors claim they performed rigorous research beforehand. Uh, They tested really hard to make sure this wasp would not harm other local species. And they said, you know, according to their tests, everything's Team to check out. So they introduced the wasps in 2016, and I checked with a more recent news article on the wasp control project from 2018. It looks like the effort is having early markers for success. The wasps have become established, their range is spreading, uh, but we'll have to wait a few more years before we see the full effect on the crab populations. But uh, I hope it works, and I hope it doesn't have any unexpected effects.
0: Lest it become island of the wasps, kingdom of the wasps.
1: You don't want to have to think about Crab Island needing to be protected. You want to think that Crab Island is an armored claw wielding uh, force to be reckoned with, and that it you know it it can withstand anything on its own. but I don't know, yeah, natural populations or even unnatural populations are vulnerable, yeah,
0: I mean look at Skull Island, right. King Kong's uh,
1: homeland. Oh, I don't know anything about population oh. dynamics there. Or a
0: Monster Island, where mm. all the the the, the, the giant uh, Japanese monsters <laughs> live, uh, the kaiju. Yeah, uh, that's uh, clearly these are places that need to be protected. We don't need to go in there and try and defeat them with our robots. Is there
1: is there a crab kaiju? I've never. Oh yes, that there
0: are there are crab kaiju up the wazoo. Yes, N- nice. Yes, they have their own movies sometimes. Uh, yeah, Godzilla fought one. I forget its name. I can I can never remember. Uh, the names of the the adversaries. Oni Baba. Uh, that may be it. But yeah, he fought a giant crab in one episode. It was. I finally remember it from my childhood. But we'll get into we'll get into monster crabs a bit more in the next episode of stuff to blow your mind because we will talk about another resident of Christmas Island that is an enormous decapod. In fact, the the largest land crab that you will find on Earth. Now, naturally, we would love to hear from everybody out there. We have listeners all over the world. I wonder if we have just a single listener that lives on Christmas Island. If we do, email us. Yes. Uh, likewise, we have a lot of Australian listeners uh, and just listeners who have traveled around the world in general. If you have ever been to Christmas Island and witnessed any of the species we discuss here, or just, I mean, even if you just been there and you saw nothing at all, we want to hear from you. It, whatever you have to share about Christmas Island would be gratefully appreciated. And in the meantime, you can check out all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes, links out to our various social media accounts, including uh, the the discussion module, which is uh, our group on Facebook. Look up Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module and you can – easily join that and interact with other listeners as, as, as well as uh, Joe and myself. Uh, the website, stufftoblowyourmind.com, also has a link to our store where you can buy some cool merchandise, stickers, shirts, etc. Um, it's probably, probably a bit late now for, for Christmas gifts, at <laughs> least for this Christmas. But hey, you can go ahead and start start banking ahead for next year. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending a dime, well, you can simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, that kind of thing, you can email us at at blowthemindathowstuffworks.com.